once and for all these smaller movies that rely on critics, awards buzz, and the momentum that they get from a platform release in theaters, that is going away. Welcome to the Powers That Beat Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Wednesday, December 28th. Today, Matt Bellany is here to talk about the disappointing holiday box office and make some surprising Oscars predictions. Could Avatar get the most nominations and Top Gun score best picture? And later, Matt and I talk about his Hollywood villain of the year. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, I'm here with Matt Bellany. Matt, did you and your family go to the uh, movies over the holiday at all? I actually did. I saw... Babylon yesterday, which I really enjoyed. I know it's not making any money at the box office and we'll probably lose a ton for Paramount. Damien Chazelle may or may not be in director jail after this movie. I I don't think he will be, but I really liked it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you're one of the few people who went out and saw that. It's been kind of like a rough season for movies, maybe. I mean, I I looked at a list of the movies they were playing near near me when I was up in Boston over the weekend and um, I didn't recognize like 90% of them and it was 10 degrees outside. We thought about seeing Tar, but then saw it was like almost three hours and gave up. Yeah. You've named a bunch of problems the movie business has right now. One of them is the length of movies. Another over this past week has been the weather, which did not help. Amazingly, Avatar is still doing decent business despite all that. Some of these other movies, I think, use the weather to excuse some of the poor performance. They would not have done well anyways. The Whitney Houston biopic is also flopping. It's also two and a half hours, which... When you're going to make a movie and there's already been a recent movie that was on Lifetime about the same subject, don't make it two and a half hours. Like, come on. I just feel like there's a a little bit of a disconnect between Hollywood and its audience right now. But Avatar seems to be doing okay. It's interesting because so many people were quick to say, oh, it's not holding its audience like the first one did. But it's a totally different animal here. This is a sequel. And it's playing like a sequel. It opened to about double what the original did, and it's dropped off a little bit, and I don't think the weather helped. But we're at the very beginning of whether Avatar will be considered a hit or not. It's about to cross a billion as we're taping on Tuesday, and that's the floor. The billion is the floor for this movie. The question will be, can it get to two billion? And James Cameron himself has said that it needs to get to two billion, not necessarily to break even, but to show... Disney and the world that there is a demand for more Avatar. Yeah, I mean, like you wrote the other day, this is a movie that a lot of people in Hollywood were sort of banking their hopes on to revitalize the box office or even as sort of like a metaphorical win for Hollywood in a year that had a lot of struggles, you know, sort of proved that that sort of movie magic is still possible and James Cameron is going to be the guy to do it. 
I mean, like you said, they they were sort of deep in the hole um, in terms of the production cost and the marketing costs. Is $2 billion the number at which people in Hollywood are going to feel good about this? Like it was a success or does it really need to clear even higher than that for uh, anyone to be taking a victory lap? I think $2 billion is enough. I mean, the first one grows 2.9 after some re-releases. It's the highest grossing movie of all time. But the proof is going to be in the overseas grosses because two-thirds of the original gross was from overseas. And we're early times on that. I think it's really tough for the movie that China is having such COVID problems right now because they had hoped that that would get to a couple hundred million just in China alone. Doesn't look like it's going to get there. But for the rest of the world, we'll see. And you're right. This was sort of looked at as the great hope for the movie business. I don't think that's a fair burden to put on Jim Cameron or on this movie. The box office is going to be down significantly this year from 2019. And the holiday season is going to be off even from last year just because Spider-Man No Way Home was so big last Christmas. But that's not a result of Avatar. That's a result of there being so many fewer movies in theaters. If you look at the holiday season, there's usually five, six all audiences movies that are competing for attention. This year, there's like two, maybe three. The Puss in Boots sequel. I mean, nothing else is resonating other than Avatar. And you're seeing some of these older movies like Wakanda Forever do okay. But this is really a one movie corridor. And nothing else is resonating. And that's a problem for Hollywood. It's going into 2023 as well. The box office next year is going to be down too. There's just fewer movies. And some of that is production delays and movies that are being shipped to streaming rather than theaters. And some of that is just, I think there's a hesitance right now to try anything other than a pre-branded, IP-driven, risk-free, quote-unquote, blockbuster in theaters right now. It does feel like there were really only a handful of small films throughout there that are genuine box office draw. There's a lot of really small movies that are underperforming right now. Part of that is audience behavior, as you noted. People don't feel like they need to go to the movies anymore unless it's a a big, big blockbuster draw. They want to see it on the big screen. But also, like you mentioned, this is a choice by the studios too in terms of where they are putting their best ideas and their talent and their capital to work. A lot of that's moving to the small screen. Do you see those kind of trends reversing at all in the coming year? Or does that kind of feel like the groove we're into? Oh, yeah. That's the narrative this year, I think. The big takeaway is that once and for all, these smaller movies that rely on critics and awards buzz and the momentum that they get from a platform release in theaters, that is going away. One after another, this fall and holiday season, these movies that are getting great reviews. The Fablemans is a Spielberg movie. That's not doing well. She said, also bomb. You look at something like um, Tar, not doing well. Movies that have stars in them, like Babylon, that's not doing well. One after another this fall, the awards movies fell flat. I do think it's just that the audience has been trained to expect these kind of movies at home. Now, there are exceptions. Something like Everything Everywhere All at Once is the exception that proves the rule. There was a tiny movie but it felt big. It felt like an event. And that grossed 100 million worldwide. Huge success. And there have been others that have done okay. Something like The Menu, which is a Ray Fiennes movie, is doing okay. Uh, Banshees of Inisherin, okay, I guess. But the days of a movie opening in November in small theaters and then 
getting wider and wider and then awards nominations. And all of a sudden, by Oscar night, the movie's grossed $100 million domestic. Those days, I think, are over. The counterpoint of that, of course, is like the Avatar movie, like you said, um, really impressive. It got a lot of people in the seats. James Cameron pulled out some really impressive technical wizardry with the the variable frame rate experimentation he was doing there. I mean, the movie had a almost photorealistic quality that I thought was spectacular. Regardless of whether it hits $2 billion, $2.5 billion, is Disney going to go ahead and, and greenlight more of these sort of at the same level that maybe James Cameron was expecting in terms of like, the budget that he'd like to work with? Or, or do you suspect that maybe there will be some more caution or hesitancy with Avatar 3 or 4 going deeper into this franchise? That's what we're talking about here. Whether it gets to $2 billion or not, that's the question is, what's going to happen to these four sequels he has planned? He's already said that they are so far into 3 that 3 is happening. I think a lot of the costs that they spent on 2 will bear fruit on three, so it won't be quite as expensive. But beyond that, I think Disney is looking very closely at this. And Cameron himself has even hedged a little, saying, oh, maybe he wouldn't direct those. Kind of walking back a little bit from that. But if it gets to two billion, I think Disney will say, okay, the demand is there and go for it. And that's the question is whether they can get to two billion. We're just about at the end of the year. Do you think this is going to be another year where a lot of the best picture nominees are movies that people have not really heard of? Or, or do you suspect that the Academy is going to want to get some bigger crowd pleasers onto that list? Like Top Gun Maverick, could that be on the list? We know the Academy wants the big populist movies. So I think there's going to be a big dichotomy here. There's going to be the super blockbusters like Avatar and Top Gun Maverick will probably both be nominated. Then there's going to be the movies that few people have heard of. You'll see Tar, you'll see Babylon, you'll see Fablemans. You'll probably see everything everywhere on that list, which I think is a nod to the indie movie that was successful and young people really like that movie. I think you'll also see Elvis on that list, which was a hit. But the question is what wins? Because I think there's a huge movement in the Academy right now to award something that the general public has seen and liked and is an example of big populist movie making. And we'll see if that faction of the Academy, which might vote for a Top Gun or an Avatar, butts up against the auteur-driven faction of the Academy, which has really dominated over the past decade. And if that's the case, we'll see Fablemans or something small win over those big blockbusters. And that is going to be the fascinating narrative to watch. I don't want to put you on the spot with Oscar predictions this early, but... Um... What do you think the odds are that that a Top Gun Maverick could run away with this? I mean, I, having seen both, I will say that Avatar I found to be technically impressive. Enjoyed it. I wasn't bored, which is a, a, an achievement at three and a half hours. But Top Gun blew me away. I, I really felt like that was an incredible cinematic achievement. Are people in Hollywood talking about this as like an actual contender? Or is it just kind of like, it'd be nice to see it on the list? No, totally. It's gone in the past couple months from, oh, it'd be nice to see it nominated to this movie could win. And... That, I think, is a real interesting thing. I, I agree with you that I don't think Avatar will end up being the winner. It could end up with the most nominations just because it will dominate the technical categories. But when it comes to the biggest award, I think Top Gun has a shot. I think Fablemans is probably still the front runner just because of the love for Spielberg. And this is a very personal movie that connects to his love of cinema which I think is going to be very appealing for a lot of voters. So I would say right now, Fablemans is probably still the front runner, but 
Top Gun is coming on strong. Well, there's there's nothing that Hollywood loves more than a uh, semi-self-indulgent movie that celebrates itself. There's a long history of that. Okay, when we get back, I want to ask you about your second annual award for Hollywood Villain of the Year. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're back for Matt's Hollywood Villain of the Year. Matt, what was the verdict for 2022? This was a tough one. Many, many villains. Uh, this was a really difficult year for the entertainment industry. The bottom kind of fell out of the streaming wars. And all of these companies have seen their valuations drop, sometimes as much as 70%. But one person really set the, I feel like, feeling of the year. And that person is someone you've never heard of. His name is Gunnar Wiedenfels. He is the CFO of Warner Brothers Discovery, chief financial officer. And he is the architect of the $3.5 billion in cost cuts and write-offs and layoffs and diminished ambition that has been the hallmark of Warner Brothers Discovery this year and Hollywood in general. So for that reason, Gunnar is my villain of the year. Yeah, when you talk about cutting costs, uh, strip mining some of these assets, writing down movies instead of releasing them, I feel like, of course, the other big intangible factor here is the currency that Warner Brothers is spending with the creative community. I mean, that's an asset too. And there's one that's, I would imagine, hard to get back once you burn some of those bridges. Is that how creatives in Hollywood are feeling with Gunnar, with David Zaslav, with Warner Brothers? Or do they kind of get it? Like, it's been a bad year. Zaslav had to pay down these big debts. And of course, you know, Gunnar is just the hatchet man. He's just doing his job. It sucks, but it is what it is. Well, he is certainly doing his job. He's very good at his job. And that's not any knock on him. That's why he was brought in here to make these cuts. But you're asking an interesting question because Warner Discovery is making a bet. And the bet here is that they can execute this cost cutting and the hit they take reputationally and in the creative community will not be significant enough where they have to care about doing things like killing the Batgirl movie when it was already almost finished and having to tell those creative people that their creative work that cost $90 million was more effectively deployed as a tax write-off than as a movie that would appear on HBO Max. Or telling the creators of all of these shows that were renewed by this company and then later unrenewed. That's where the people in Hollywood draw the line, I think. Everybody understands these companies are under tremendous financial duress. They all followed Netflix kind of off a cliff here, spending billions of dollars on streaming content that ultimately there was not necessarily a business model to support it. And they're having to correct. So they understand that. But when you say to them, this creative bargain we made where we pay for you to make this show or this movie, and we may nickel and dime you on your deal. We may argue about creative aspects of it, 
But when we agree to make it, we're going to hold up our side of the bargain and make it. And you come back to them and say like, yeah, you know, we love what you're doing, but we're just not going to do that anymore. That is where people get really upset. And I think that's where we saw some of the backlash this year. Will it ultimately prevent people from working with Warner Brothers or HBO? In the mass sense, no. I mean, I think that's the bet they're making. There's only a few buyers. HBO is still HBO. They can still turn a show into a massive cultural sensation and win Emmys. So that's still the asset they have. It's just that every time Zaslav does this, he takes a little bit out of that bank of goodwill and he's taken a lot out of that bank this year. Yeah, is there anyone in Hollywood who who benefits from the Batgirl backlash? Are there big projects or deals that are going to go to competitors? I know it's a little sort of hard to quantify. And like you said, everybody is pulling back financially in terms of the projects that they're greenlighting. Is there any kind of safe haven for big, ambitious uh, projects in, in the coming year? Yeah. First of all, these streaming companies like Apple and Amazon that don't actually have to make money on their entertainment operations, they obviously benefit because they can write the checks that some of these other companies cannot. We're going to see that coming up in the next NBA rights negotiations. Turner, which is a Warner Discovery company, has had the NBA for many years now. And the speculation is that they're not going to be able to keep the NBA because the Amazon or Apple or whoever is going to write a bigger check. I do think they're going to keep some rights, but it comes down to money here. And I think that if you are not able to compete there, or if you are someone like, let's say, Chris Nolan, who was very upset with Warner Discovery when they decided to put their entire 2021 slate of movies onto HBO Max, he didn't like that decision. He called HBO Max the worst streaming service. He didn't like how it was communicated. And then, boom, his next movie went to Universal, not Warner Brothers, where he had made most of his hits over the years. So there are... There are consequences to making these kinds of decisions. And I will say that the shows that have been scrapped or canceled by Warner Discovery, they're not necessarily from the biggest creators, but you never know who's going to be the next Mike White or Jesse Armstrong or people that were not huge household names and then became them via hits on HBO. Or, you know, these Batgirl directors, they came off a big hit with the Bad Boys movie, and this was kind of their crack at the DC Universe. Maybe they go to Marvel next time. Matt, to close us out, I know you're working on your predictions for the end of the year. Want to give us a preview of anything that you're uh, you're calling for 2023, big moves in entertainment or m and uh, I think one that is pretty certain to happen is that I think there will be some movement on the Disney board of directors. They've been under scrutiny because of this whole Bob Iger versus Bob Chapek thing. They gave Bob Iger the job after having three months earlier given Bob Chapek a new contract and a vote of confidence in a unanimous vote. That doesn't make the board look great. And there's been some reporting that's come out about how they had reservations at the time, but that was not reflected in the vote. There's a lot of people on the Disney board that do not have any entertainment experience. And I wouldn't be surprised if that changed in 2023. All right, Matt, thanks very much. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 